Today's episode, as part of the 16 Days of Activism to End Gender-Based Violence, our guest is Andrea Silverstone from Sages. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biarg Consulting. Hi, everyone. We're currently in the 16 days of activism to end gender-based violence, and November is Family Violence Prevention Month. So Alicia and I wanted to bring in a local expert on this topic to discuss what workplaces must do and what they should do to support employees experiencing domestic violence. As always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that the podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge that all nations, Indigenous and non, who live and work and play in these lands, and to all who assist in their stewardship for generations to come. So we're fortunate to have Andrea Silverstone with us today. Andrea is the Executive Director of CEGES Domestic Violence Prevention Society, an organization committed to breaking the cycle of violence for individuals, organizations, and communities. She is a highly respected community partner and a collaborative leader. She's a registered social worker and mediator with a background in Judaic Talmudic law, having attended Lindenbaum College in Jerusalem and York University in Toronto. Beginning her career in Calgary at the Awatan Native Women's Shelter, Andrea later transitioned into her role as the Executive Director of CEGES. Andrea's achievements include the 2013 Association of Jewish Family and Child Agencies Goodman Award in recognition of her development and implementation of innovative programming that addresses bullying, violence, and domestic abuse in the Jewish community. The 2015 Alberta Inspiration Award for Leadership in Family Violence Prevention, and the 2015 Resolve Excellence in Community Service and Research Award in recognition of her distinguished contribution to creating homes and communities safe from interpersonal violence and abuse. Andrea has implemented a collective impact initiative to address domestic and sexual violence province-wide. She has developed programming to address the systemic nature of domestic violence in understudied communities, such as women of affluence, and strives daily to ensure individuals affected by abuse and gender inequality are made visible and know that they have an ally in her. So thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's jump in. So first off, can you tell us a little bit more about SAGES and the work that your organization does? Sure. Um, so Marcia talked a little in the introduction about how our goal is to break the, the disrupt the structures of violence. Um, and we do that through um, a few different ways. We have four pillars of work. One of them is our direct service work. And that works with individuals who are victims of domestic violence, who've experienced violence. And we do that primarily from a peer-based model, understanding that when someone is able to talk about the experiences they've, they've been through, finding themselves on the other side of that journey, it's a very powerful connection that they can make with people who are currently going through it. Um, we run those 
programs across the province of Alberta and their groups as well as individual supports. Uh, we also offer through that stream of work services for women who live at the intersection of domestic violence and sex work. And we also offer supports and services to friends and family who are supporting those who are going through abusive situations. Um, and I'll talk more about how we um, train friends and family to sit in that place, which is actually our next stream of work is our capacity building and education. And we do two big pieces of work through that. One of them is our Rainbow Ready program. And our Rainbow Ready program acknowledges that two SLGBTQ individuals face um, multiple barriers um, when trying to access services that are around domestic and sexual violence and that mm -hmm. part of what we can do is help to build capacity in those services across the province of Alberta and actually across Canada around 2SLGBTQ cultural competency cu and creating cultural safety and so we work with organizations to do that through the Rainbow Ready program. And then the other is, is that we know that the majority of individuals who experience violence or who use violence first tell a friend or family member long before they ever access a service, if they ever access a service. And so we believe that it's our role as Albertans and our role as Canadians to be able to address individuals who are experiencing violence. And so we have a program called Real Talk, which teaches individuals how to real is actually an acronym recognize domestic violence empathize ask and listen um, and I'll talk a little bit more about real talk uh, throughout our conversation today so I'm not going to go into it too much but I think that the other thing I want to say about real talk is that we know that when someone who is experiencing violence or using violence discloses to a friend or family member how that friend or family member responds entirely determines their whole trajectory of help seeking and so it's critical that friends and family and formal supporters confidants know how to respond appropriately. Our next stream of work is our collective impact work. And collective impact is this theory that we have these big issues in society, right? Domestic violence, sexual violence, homelessness, addictions, poverty, and that we have these known problems with an unknown solution. Because if we had a solution, we would have already ended them. And so what actually collective impact says is that if we get all of the right players in the room together, we can make large scale change to end some of these like large social issues. And usually it requires going upstream from some of the work that we've been doing. And we're the backbone organization for two collective impact initiatives, one that is based in Calgary um, and one that is province-wide, and they're both around eradicating domestic and sexual violence. And then our last stream of work is innovation. And essentially, one of the things that we know, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And so hopefully innovation gets us out of mm -hmm. the insanity trap. Um, I've been working in this field for, you know, 20 plus years, and I don't think that we've made the kind of movement that we need to make around eradicating domestic and sexual violence. And I think that we as a sector and as a domestic and sexual violence sector, and we as a nonprofit sector need to learn ways to engage in innovation and also have the space to be able to do so. We've been under the tyranny of the immediacy of the large issues that our clients are facing that often stops us from being able to engage in innovation because we're catching people as they fall to the bottom of the waterfall. And what innovation is going to help us to do is figure out not only what's going on at the top of the waterfall, but how do we build different systems so that nobody falls over. That's a little bit about SageS and, and what we do. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you so much. That's incredible. And since we're in Family Violence Prevention Month and also in the 16 Days of Activism to End Gender-Based Violence, and SageS is a Domestic Violence Prevention Society, uh, what's the difference between all of these terms? 
um, including sort of domestic violence, family violence, gender-based violence. And then we also hear intimate partner violence and sometimes they seem to be used interchangeably, but um, yeah. So I would suggest that we have a tendency in our like societally, especially in Alberta, to use family violence, domestic violence and interpersonal violence interchangeably. I think that there are differences in those definitions. I think that I'm actually going to talk about this from a totally different perspective from what do those definitions mean? But what do I think we should be using as our definitions? Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think that we can get stuck in the, you know, who's using what and what does it mean? And how does it resonate? Like, I think that, for example, that the reason Alberta, the Alberta government uses family violence versus domestic violence is because that was the most broadly understood way of, of defining what was happening for people who were experiencing um, what I will call coercive control. And so I actually think that what's most important is that we talk about it in terms of um, course of control, that it's a pattern of co- controlling behavior that takes away an individual's personal agency or a pattern of coercive behavior that takes away an individual's personal agency. Um, I also think that um, part of our limitations of our definitions is that there's um, domestic violence or family violence or interpersonal violence encompasses a very broad swath of experiences that fall within course of control, but that there's a very big difference between what I will define as intimate terrorism, where someone is literally afraid for their life from their partner and situational couples conflict that still involves domestic violence, but doesn't have that fear factor in the same way and often has different contributing factors. And so for me, what's actually important about um, understanding the differences about the definitions is we need to call what's happening for people the right thing so that people see themselves in that definition and that they're able to reach out for support and that the public can have the right discourse. So one of the things that I love about a course of control definition is that when you start to understand things in terms of a pattern of coercively controlling behavior, people don't think they need to be hit to be to see themselves in the definition or don't need to be hit to identify that as the definition. Um, the other thing I like about course of controlling behaviors or course of control as a definition is that course of control recognizes within its own research around it that the majority of victims of course of control are women. Um, and the other thing is, is that 95%, there was a research study that was done in the UK recently that said 95% of victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, interpersonal violence, whatever you want to call it, see themselves in the, in have experienced course of control and see themselves in that definition mm-hmm. of course of control. And so the other thing I love about course of control is if you begin to understand it in this idea of it takes away a person's personal agency. So the other place we see course of control show up is in cults, right? Nobody asks, why did that person stay in that cult? They understand that there's been a process and a technique of brainwashing and, and a destruction a thought control and a destructions of that person's sense of personal agency, which is why they stay in the cult. I hope we get to the point one day where we understand course of control and domestic violence and sexual violence Mm -hmm. in the same way. So nobody asks, why does she stay or why does he stay? Right. Because that actually does explain it. And so for me, when I think about definitions, um, the definition we need to be talking about is societally is a definition of course of control. I also think that it actually talks course of control talks to the largeness of the experiences of violence or abuse that people experience, whether it is within um, an intimate partner relationship, a dating relationship, a caregiver relationship, a parent child relationship 
state sanctioned violence, right? It's just broad enough that it encompasses all of those things, which means that if someone sees themselves in the definition, they're going to reach out for help. And if someone in society has a discourse around violence in that way, they destigmatize those who experience violence and abuse. I think that's really powerful because when I put my feminist geography hat on, I think about like culture and I think about power and how so many of these things have has the same core structure to it, right? It it just may happen in different patterns or in different um, settings, in different spaces, but yet so much of it can be there can be core core competencies to it that um, you're right. Like I love the, your comment about tying it with the cult. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think in, in a lot of situations, we can create a culture that is in a way its own cult. We just don't name it that. Whether that yeah. be in a family, in a religion, in a workplace. Um, but culture is so powerful. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you for letting me go on my rant about it. Because I feel oh, very great. passionately <laughs> about uh, us using the wrong definitions yeah. and the implications thereof. Absolutely. So when we talk about equity, diversity, inclusion, knowledge, best practices on our podcast here, we often do so in the context of the workplace. So um, when we take what you just said and the concepts of it, uh, it's helpful for us when we're learning something new to find some inspiration into how to build on positive momentum and achieve a greater change. So how does domestic violence show up in the workplace, or as you mentioned, coercive control in general, and how can it be detected in subtle and in difficult ways? I love this question because I actually think that the question in and of itself acknowledges a reality, which is that violence shows up everywhere, right? This is not a behind closed doors issue. And that's actually part of what I love about coercive control is it is it uh, acknowledges that violence shows up in public places. So a perfect example of how coercive control shows up in a workplace is an individual is in a coercively controlling relationship. And part of what their partner does to keep them in that coercively controlling relationship is show up every day for lunch and make sure that they eat lunch together. So they know who they're eating lunch with. Right. Um, And so the way that that shows up in the workplace is that that individual who's the victim of the course of control, right, starts to get nervous before their partner shows up, might show stress, their coworkers will see that, right? And so part of what course of control allows for is those conversations, because if you're not in a course of controlling relationship, it might be super sweet that your partner is showing up every day for lunch. But if you're in a course of controlling relationship and the intentionality behind your partner showing up is to control who you're having lunch with, what you're eating for lunch and who you're making connections with, right? That's how it can show up at work. Um, Another, and these are real life examples from clients that we've worked with. So this is one of them that we've heard. Another one is sending flowers every day to work, right? And those flowers being ostentatious and large, both to show that the partner is keeping their eye on them. And also it's a, you know, to show ownership, right? I, I, you know, that, you know, this person has a partner and that partner is, you know, sending flowers and those flowers sit on that desk, right? So one of our clients actually told us a story about how their partner was sending flowers every day and they asked their partner numerous times not to, because it made them feel uncomfortable, embarrassed, and also like their partner was trying to display ownership. And of course the partner did not listen because it was a coercively controlling relationship. And so this individual started throwing the flowers out as soon as they arrived. And so the partner 
got a wind of that. And so the partner started showing up every day to make sure that the flowers were on the desk, right? Which actually then allowed for the workplace to see the violence because her coworker was able to say to her, why are you throwing those lovely flowers out? Well, because they make me feel this way, right? And then they were able to identify the course of control that was happening. And so those are the really subtle ways that course of control shows up in the workplace. You know, it shows up as incessive texting, right? Phone calling and watching your coworker, because we've seen this happen, right? Visibly get tense when their phone rings or when they have to answer the text or they're in a meeting and their phone is constantly buzzing, right? And they're either ignoring it or constantly like trying to text back and you see the stress, which then allows you to have what we call a real talk, right? To recognize the violence, empathize, ask the questions, are you okay? right? And then listen to the response and offer support. And so actually we see course of control show up in all sorts of ways in the public sphere, especially at work. Wow. That's amazing. And I can even see how, for instance, that partner who is delivering flowers every day, then can make it even more difficult for that person to ever disclose because everyone thinks such a wonderful person sending flowers, right? And just exactly. Yeah. It's terrible. Okay. And on that note, in, in Alberta, a few years ago, the OHS code was amended to include domestic violence in the definition of violence in the workplace, um, which I was pretty excited to see. And this then required employers to create a domestic violence policy, uh, have protocols and sort of procedures in place, as well as required some training. They also created 10 days of a domestic violence leave, although it's unpaid. There's also the Government of Canada's Bill C-65, the, an act to amend the Canada Labour Code, um, which I believe comes into an effect this January. And uh, in this particular federal bill would require workplaces to do, I think, something similar, maybe to create policy protocols, procedures to uh, prevent, respond to, and support those who have been subject to harassment and violence. And it specifically just lists around sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace. So they're a bit different, um, but the Government of Canada also has a uh, 10 days of domestic violence leave. So... Yeah. So what are your thoughts on these changes and what are some ways employers can do this right? So um, the first thing I just want to talk about is I, I'm happy to see the 10 days leave. I wish it was 10 days paid leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we all do. Uh, but given that, I think for me, what's really interesting about both of these laws, especially Bill C-65, is that given COVID, um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, we're sitting here on this podcast, yeah. I you know, Marcy, I saw your dog walk by in the back. You know, I'm not sure exactly where you are, Alicia, but like I'm sitting at home right now, mm-hmm. right? And so we're all working from home. And so if my employer um, has an obligation to make my workplace safe from violence and I'm working from home and I'm experiencing violence in the home, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. How yeah. does an employer make sure that my workplace is safe if my workplace is home and I'm being abused in my home? Right. What obligations and due diligence does your employer have to do? And so for me, that is a particularly interesting question to ask, because even though, you know, I'm hoping that there's like a vaccine on the horizon and we're all going to be like not trapped in our homes anymore. I have a feeling that we're going to not go back to all working together all the time. I think that home as a, as a workplace is going to stay as a reality in our society. And so um, for me, I have I think that Uh, the way that I would interpret it is that employers do have due diligence to make sure 
that if you're working from home, that your that your home is a safe place to be working from, and that you're not experiencing violence in your workplace. Um, and I think that there's different ways that employers can do that. But I think first and foremost, employers need to educate themselves about what violence coercive control is, how they can identify it, and how they can respond to it, um, and what that might look like. And so that that is, and so I think I said earlier, I was going to talk more about our Real Talk initiative that we've started, but that is exactly what Real Talk is. We teach, um, part of what we do through Real Talk is we work with employers and we teach employers how to do all those things, recognizing that home has become a workplace and home could be a very dangerous place to be. And so um, it's about both educating everyone who's in that workplace about how to recognize domestic violence and empathize and ask and listen, but also what sort of due diligence employers need to do, whether it might mean providing a space for that individual to work out of that isn't their home, whether it might mean providing with that individual with supports to make sure that they can make their home a safer place, which can look different in a whole bunch of ways. You know, whether it means actually providing supports and services to that individual to deal with the violence so that they can make some decisions. When a person leaves a violent situation, there's a lot of really heavy and hard trade-offs. And I think employers need to recognize that it is not just as easy as like, well, just leave the abusive situation. Because there's so many trade-offs that, that involve often children, finances, a sense of security, cultural co- cultural implications. Um, and so employers need to understand the, the subtleties of that and not just have a black and white, well, why don't you just leave sort of response to violence that's happening in the workplace, which is happening in the home. I also think that it's incumbent upon employers to recognize what I talked about before, that course of control shows up in the workplace and that the employers need to recognize that and need to address it and then support the individual that when that, um, you know, partner is showing up every day with flowers or every day for lunch or texting, you know, 20 million times a day, that is violence that is showing domestic violence that's showing up coercive control that's showing up in the workplace and needs to be addressed. And so I think that there's a lot of implications of, um, you know, OHS within Alberta, as well as like Bill C-65. And I look forward to employers taking this on as uh, something that they see themselves as accountable for as like workplace injury, because I think that they're the same. I completely agree with you, but I, I can't help but think about how poor we have been as a society when it comes to, you know, the domestic sphere and the workplace sphere of actually combining those. So how would you say, how are we doing at this? I know with some of the work that we've done through the not-for-profit that I'm with, we've approached STEM companies and a good chunk of them don't even have policies in place, let alone trying to add to them or to make them better or to even bring this type of thing onto the radar for them. So how would you rate Alberta companies in this topic? I I hate to give people a rating, but I would definitely (laughs) suggest that there's lots of room for improvement. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what you said about like, a company comes to you and they want a policy, right? That That's also yeah. been our experience, right? A company comes and they want a policy. You know, I, I think about the fact that so we do this rainbow ready program, right? And so we had um, people come to us and say, I want a trans policy for, for individuals who want to use my shelter, right? And our answer was, you can't just make a policy because all that becomes is a piece of paper that something is written on that has no relevance or no connection to actually the people who are living or implementing the policy. 
this actually has to start with education before anything else. And Mm -hmm. so for me, I think that, you know, I would say that there's lots of room for improvement in Alberta. And I think that the place that we need to start is by making sure that we're having discussions and that there's discourse within society in Alberta and with companies in Alberta to make sure that we're not just checking boxes around what we have to do to do our due diligence, but that we're encouraging organizations to also engage in training. I almost feel like if legislation is passed that says that, you know, a company needs to have a set of policies around making sure that it's a safe, a workplace safe from sexual violence, harassment, and domestic violence. It also has to say, and there has to be training to go along with this. Right. Because Mm -hmm. it's so much more than just policies. It's about training as well. And I think that Alberta is not the only place that has a lot of room for improvement. I think generally speaking, there is in the corporate world and, you know, the not all worlds, right, that have that have workforces, there's a lot of room um, to understand and engage in education versus just making sure that we like check a bunch of boxes, right? You know, I know that a big part of what you guys do is equity, diversity, and inclusion work. And so one of my biggest bugaboos about that work is that so often it turns into like a checklist Mm -hmm. versus a cultural shift and a paradigm shift, which is what ultimately we're looking for. Absolutely. And Being that with the OHS code, what is the consequences to a company? Is there consequences to a company if they don't create that safe workplace? Like, I've I've personally have heard this too many times working with companies where they say, oh, we don't have an HR department. We don't need those things. Those are just luxuries or, you know, we always hire the best person for the job. We always look after each other. So we don't need those types of things. But are they legally obligated or can somebody come back at them and say, you didn't create this safe workplace for me. So now you are, I guess, legally responsible. Like what is the consequences if they don't do some of this hard work? Is there? (laughs) (laughs) Myers might be able to answer this a little bit better than me, but what I can tell you is this, is that the legal consequences are somewhat irrelevant. I think to most employers, Right. It's all it's all a game of risk mitigation. Yeah. Right? So employers try and figure out what's the likelihood of us actually ever being held accountable. Well, it's pretty low and therefore it costs more money that, you know, like that sort of thing. And so yeah. I think that it's important for laws to have teeth. But I think even more important is about education, because then people do it because there's an intentionality mm-hmm. and help them to understand that actually, like, I can't remember what it is, but it's a staggering amount in the billions that is lost every year to domestic sure. violence in the workplace, right? In, the, in terms of our economy, in terms of the workplace, sick days performance. And so to help people to understand that if you actually address what's going on for people in terms of domestic and sexual violence, their mental health, all of those other things as employers, they actually end up being better employees that cost you, that contribute more to your company and cost you less money. And so I think that teeth in laws are good, but they're very rarely used. I, I often think about um, everyone in Alberta is a mandatory reporter of child abuse, right? So if you're over the age of 18, mm-hmm. you're a mandatory reporter for child abuse most Albertans don't report child abuse because they don't know how, and they also don't know that they're mandatory reporters. Mm-hmm. And even those of us that are, that do think we're mandatory reporters who work in the field, has anyone, I don't think I know of any case ever in the history of Alberta where someone who, who has been brought up on charges or given a fine, like whatever the full extent of that piece of legislation allows, I think it's six months in jail or $2,000. I don't think that anyone has, that has ever happened to anyone who hasn't reported child abuse. So, Mm -hmm. really, I think that 
you know, if a law doesn't either have massively large teeth and or we don't change the culture around how we believe ourselves to be responsible mm-hmm. for those parts of the law, then that's actually how you make society shift. We're not going to make society shift around reporting child abuse because you could end up in, you know, with a big fine. We're going to make society shift around child abuse if we help everyone to understand that they have a role to play and that they have permission to speak out. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. And I and I know, like, speaking back to that domestic sphere versus the work sphere, it goes to show you how, you know, I can see the pushback being, well, I don't get involved in people's personal lives, but... It's that same thing that you mentioned about the child abuse. It's, it, it is up to all of us to make sure that each other are safe. And um, I hate to have to go to that bottom line that it costs you money mm-hmm. in order. You yeah. should do this because it costs you money on your bottom line. It shouldn't have to come to that. It seems like that's where we have to start. It <laughs> yeah. should be a moral <laughs> obligation. Mm-hmm. And we have written here, we just want to talk a little bit about that 10-day leave and how it's currently unpaid. And um, I would say that if you are someone who's in a domestic situation where maybe that has restricted you from your employment or bettering yourself or, or, or your employment opportunities, that for a lot of women, that 10-day leave, or men, if it happens to be that way, but a lot of women with that 10-day leave, that could cause them their mortgage. It could cause them food on their table. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a start. It really is just a start. And I think that you bring up a really good point, right? That for people who are living close to the poverty line, 10 days unpaid could be the difference between being able to keep your home or not, put groceries on the table or not. And so I absolutely believe that it should be 10 days of paid leave, not unpaid leave. And I think that there's implications for the fact that it isn't because I'm sure that it's underutilized as a result. Mm-hmm. And have you, just out of curiosity, have you heard of if it's been, if, you know, from your clients or, or your interactions, if, if people have been using it or whatnot? And because I am, because I'm not sure even what their internal kind of, you know, approval processes for getting that leave, and then you're forced to disclose potentially, or, I mean, even if you don't overtly disclose, it's assumed, and then it it seems tricky. So what I would suggest is that we have clients who have used it, um, but their client, but we also had clients who used it before it was a law, and what I mean by that is this, is that clients who had good relationships with their employers before that piece of legislation came in, we're able to go to their employers and say, I need some time off because I'm in an abusive situation and I need to leave. And can I have more vacation days or can I have more, you know, whatever that looks like. And I think depending on the size of the business for some of our clients prior to this law, it was paid. And for some of our clients prior to the law, it was unpaid. Would I say that this has radically changed how our clients, you know, interact with their employers around getting time off if they need to deal with domestic violence issues. No, the only thing is that it might have brought to their attention that they can ask the time off, right, that they know that that piece of legislation exists. And I would also suggest that employers that before would have given those employees paid time off are doing it still paid, even though they're not obligated to. Mm -hmm. And didn't or couldn't are still not doing it. Right. Right. And so uh, would I say it's like been a game changer? No. Do I think it's a great start? Yes. And do I think that it acknowledges the effects of domestic violence on an individual and the fact that time is needed to deal with the repercussions of violence? Yes. I think that that's great. 
And I would say there are so many groups in Alberta. Well, unfortunately, Alberta has a very high um, amount of domestic violence. We are unfortunately known for that. (laughs) It's not a good statistic to, you know, be number one at. Um, (laughs) But also, I I think with a lot of families and a lot of people going through this, they, they don't know what they can do or where they can go. And I do, I mean, I'm going to put a plug in for a group just because this is a group that I personally volunteer with and help with quite a bit. It's called the Children's Cottage Society here in Calgary. This is a group that recognizes that when families are going through something like this and they have young children, that the stress of having the young children and the young children's needs and going through this um, was causing a lot of children to end up in the children's hospital. So the Children's Cottage Society will take children for a couple days while the parents figure this out. So uh, there is so many great groups, yours and, and, and so many el- others in the province that are doing the hard work of trying to help and support. Um, and I think we all need to support these groups that are doing this support too. It's not just to help. We can't just only help the employees. We also have to, as a society, know what's out there um, to give advice. And I think Brenda's house is another one here in Calgary. I don't know about up in Edmonton, but those are some of the ones, the key ones that come into my mind right now here in Calgary. Um, so if our listeners do need to give advice to somebody, that is a couple other groups that, that can help with that. Um, Cause it is all, like you said, it's up to all of us to, to support yeah. each other and uh, give each other resources in this situation, in these situations. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's lots of great organizations across the province of Alberta. And I think that probably the best thing that people can do is either to call from across Alberta, the Family Violence Information Line, um, because that will connect you to any resources, whether it's Children's Cottage, you know, Brenda's House, which is actually not for domestic violence, it's for homeless mm. families, okay. um, or any one of the shelters across the province. Um, and so if I was to suggest like a phone number that you should call, it would either be the family violence information line or just call 211 because that will also hook you mm-hmm. in to the family violence information line. That's like an easy way of remembering. There are so many programs out there that are so specialized in so many ways that I don't think I would expect the public to know yeah. which program to send who to. Uh, but what the public needs to know is that they can support someone to call 211 mm-hmm. um, or to support them to call the family violence information line and get connected in um in calgary there's also a helpline which is called connect which will connect you to every other service um there isn't a connect type line in each of the cities which is why the family violence information line is probably one of your very best resources and we'll make sure we put some of this in our resource section too Mm-hmm. Yeah. Family violence information line is also often called FIVAL. So if you hear FIVAL, that's what it means. Sorry, what is it? FIVAL? FIVAL. F-I-V-L. So family violence. FIVAL. Yeah. Family violence information line. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And that's really good for employers uh, potentially listening to this to, to know some of those options and to educate themselves on that. Because just another plug for CJS's Real Talk Workshop the one I attended, one of one key takeaway was also that workplaces, if they, you know, if they find out that there's someone experiencing domestic violence or whatnot, the a lot of the first reactions are, okay, how can I fix it? What can, how can I go up to that person and talk to them and get and help them leave? And really one of the one of those key takeaways from that workshop was that you need to provide them with options. You can't take the power away from them and their decision-making power and, you know, and push them into a decision. It's up to, to them to do it on their own and you can help inform it and support them around it. 
That's exactly it, right? Because we don't, we never know exactly what that person is dealing with in terms of the trade-offs around the violence, what they want to happen. And we have to respect each person's personal agency. And that really the conversation is much more about listening and empathizing than this is what I think you should do. Why aren't you leaving already? Right. Yeah. Which well, I think is creates, like our incline. Yeah. I was going to say it creates another power struggle, right? Like you don't need to add another power struggle on top of the one they're already in. Totally. Or make someone feel super ashamed. Yeah. Right. That when someone says, why can't you just leave it? A person internalizes that message and thinks to themselves, yeah, why can't I just leave without understanding? And they, they know why. Right. But then it makes them feel ashamed that they're, that they're not making a decision that society considers to be an acceptable decision. Right. Or why can't you just stop using that violence? Right. Or they minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. I've been in situations like that before I managed it. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of negative responses that come often when people help seek and reach out to friends and family members, which is why it's so critical. I think this real talk um, training, because it really makes sure that friends and family members know how to, and employers know how to respond appropriately. And then whatever the next steps are. I also think often employers don't ask at all because they don't know the answer. I'm not going to ask that question because if I do, I'm going to open up a can of worms and then I can't do anything about it. And so part of what Real Talk, I think, helps employers to understand is if you ask the question, we can make sure that you get connected to whatever the next steps might be. We can, you know, part of what Suggest does is we can support you as the employer as well as supporting the employee as they're making decisions. And sometimes the employee will never come to us, right? The support totally comes in the form of the employer, And what we do is we support the employer as they're supporting the employee because not every, only about, according to StatsCan, only about 35% of people who experience violence actually ever access a service. Most of them access employers, family, and friends. And so we need to make sure that for that 64% of the population that actually don't access services, that we're making sure that, that the people that they are accessing, whether it's an employer or friend or family, know how to be responsive in the right way to get them the support that they need. I think that actually ties into the cultural reasons on why maybe people don't know how to respond is that if it is, this is a pretty prevalent thing and that if people have experienced it themselves, tried to find their own solutions, whatever solution that was, you can see how if you, if you just succumb to it or just, you know, internally dealt with it, how you would not know what to say to somebody else like I think part of this is changing our culture of saying none of this is acceptable mm-hmm. right yeah. exactly none of this is acceptable and we're all responsible for helping people who are experiencing it and yeah. or using violence right this yeah. is a whole society issue this is not a something that happens behind closed doors and it's not my business yeah yeah I remember someone saying much that common sense is cultural well if your cultural norm is to ignore it then that becomes the common sense. So we have to change, we have to change the norm that this is something we're allowed to talk about. And it can come out of the, it can come out of behind the closed doors so it can be discussed so that we can change what is normal and change what it's then culturally acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's the hardest work, changing norms, attitudes, and beliefs. Absolutely. Right. And that's part of the work that we do through CGS through our collective impact work, because that takes all of us together to change those norms, attitudes, and beliefs. But we'll get there. You know, society has begun changing our norms, attitudes, and beliefs over the past 
40 years. And I think that we will continue to do so, but we can't take our foot off the gas and our eye off Mm -hmm. of like the goal, because I think that we could very easily fall back into a society that doesn't do the things we need to do around these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. (laughs) This is really, really informative and really educational and insightful with lots of good, good ideas for workplaces, for employers, but also for just colleagues and people to understand these issues better um, and to detect them and then and to know what to do and know how to respond. So thank you so much. Before we conclude, was there anything else that you'd like to share or any last thoughts on the topic? I would just really encourage every employer to make sure that they engage with Real Talk. And I okay. think uh, you guys will put up some Real Talk information. Mm-hmm, but Absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, I think it's realtalk.sayjust.org. Okay. Yeah. We'll put it in the resource section of the podcast and then we'll also link it when we post about it. I actually think every Albertan should do real talk. Yeah. It was amazing. It was really, really great. And I've like kind of semi a background in this area, but it just opened my eyes. Like it was amazing. So I highly recommend it. Awesome. And support your local domestic violence organizations. Yeah. And sorry, I should ask, is there a cost for taking the training? So if you are a member of the public, there is no cost. Okay. Uh, if you're an employer wanting to bring it in, depending on um, depending on the size of your organization, as well as whether you're in Alberta or not, there is a cost, but the cost is minimal. Perfect. And we also offer it in French. Oh, great. Oh, fantastic. Because uh, we do work with federal employees, employers. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm in charge of of writing down some key takeaways from this episode. So here's some of the key things that that I heard today, starting with um, definitions and how we can all get caught up in definitions when in fact we need to understand that all of these relationships and all of this violence is about coercive control and that if we step back and think about what that means and the patterns that are found within that, if we might be able to spot this a bit more and how this is part of understanding individuals' agency being taken away and that how we react can be a key understanding of, of and a crucial understanding of, of how the person will move forward after telling you and that usually someone who goes through violence will tell a friend or family before ever going for resources and many don't have the opportunity to use resources because they one maybe don't understand that they're there or two just don't feel that um, they can so as as individuals as um, employers um, it is our responsibility to Um, as a greater culture, as a greater society to all take this on and um, to look into real talk, which is uh, training that that your group gives here here in the province. Um, Oh, I should ask, is it only provincial or can people take it? No, it's across Canada. Perfect. So, and real talk means... Sorry, can you tell us what that is again? What sure, the- it's recognize the domestic violence, empathize with the individual who is telling you what's going on for them, ask questions like, are you okay? And listen. Perfect. And from there, we can hopefully 
stop the cycle of cultural norms that this is acceptable behavior and bring this out from the shadows. It's not a closed door topic and um, this should be everybody's concern and that there's many resources out there. One main phone number here is the Family Violence Information Line um, and we will put that in our resource section. So um, we know that this is a pretty heavy discussion today and we thank all of our listeners for taking the time to listen and we hope that um, everyone will take this on as a topic worth their time and their resources. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and once again, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. Please hit subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, let's continue the conversation. Let us know what you think. Send us questions on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We would love to hear from you. And if you have an idea for a topic, please let us know and we can discuss that with you. And until next time, bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.